1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you, um, hopefully you're there by now, um, and, and I'm looking around, looks like everybody is through uh, flipping through Bibles. But there, um, while, you're, while, you're, while you're turning there, if you still need more time, I just want to, you know, kind of highlight this story that, that, that I was, that, that caught my attention um, some time back. You know, in social media, there's a lot of negative things you can say about social media, obviously. But one of the good things that I truly love about social media is how many um, videos of inspiration and encouragement that are circling around the internet that will otherwise probably go unknown if it wasn't for social media making them go viral. And, and there was one such video that I recently ran across that, that really captured my attention. It was a, a young teenage boy. Uh, he looked like He looked to be about in his teen years, and he was colorblind, and for the first time, he was given a pair of glasses designed to help him see color. Um, and there was, there was, there was just uh, an unbelievable amount of joy on this young man's face as he took his glasses that he was given, and he put them on, and he saw color for the, for the first time. It's, it's really hard to describe how much joy that, that was in this young man's face. And he walked around the room, and he was, he was um, just taking in each object as he walked around the room and, and taking his glasses off and then putting them back on to see that object almost, uh, almost brand new because it was for him. Um, and, and so w- the reality was is because of his condition, he wasn't able to see the world as it really was. At least not until he was given these special glasses with these new lenses that he received um, that were necessary to help him see the world as it was intended to be seen. And in some ways, when I hear stories like that or see stories like that, rather, I think about us, the church, not just this church, but the church at large. You see, without the lens of the gospel, we are not able to see life as it is intended to be seen. We aren't able to rightly understand the matters of life and the matters of relationships. And, 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 in, and in this case, for this chapter and for us this morning, the, the, the matters of leadership without the gospel lens. When we don't wear the gospel on the eyes of our heart, we'll naturally gravitate towards unhealthy and and even dangerous forms of leadership versus leadership that is shaped and molded by Jesus. Of course, some of us may, you know, may be saying as we, as, we, as we hear that, we may be saying, well, okay, okay, I got you. So when I get saved, once I get saved, I'm good to go. I got my gospel lens on now and my future's so bright, I got to wear new shades for the old school people in this room. I'll be looking at the world through through my gospel lens once I get saved, and everything will be well once I get saved. And that brings me to another part in the, in the video, you see. So as he was going around and he was looking with, with his new color, colored glasses, he would take his glasses off, and he would hurry up and put them back on. Why? Because every time he took those glasses off was a moment where he had ceased to see the world as it was intended to be seen. And the lens of the gospel, by the way, they work in a similar way. We can sometimes take them off and start looking around at the world 
the way we've always looked at it. We can sometimes take them off and look at relationships the way we've always looked at it. We can sometimes take them off and, and look at leadership a certain way, the way we've always looked at it. For example, believing that leadership is about asserting power and asserting force, and it's about doing whatever you have to do to get your way, and it's about fame, and it's about celebrity. That's, that's taking the, the lens of the gospel. That's taking them off the eyes of the heart. You see, whenever we aren't looking at life through the lens of the gospel, we will be compelled to define good leadership just like the rest of the world. The Christians in Corinth seem to be making a similar mistake as we read about them over the, over the last several, as we've read about them over the last several weeks, which is part of the reason why there are divisions that are forming and there is a, 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 an unbelievable amount of spiritual immaturity that, that appears to be very prominent in this church. So Paul, in the next 20 verses or so, is setting out to help them understand what good Christian leadership actually looks like. Let me tell you a couple of reasons why this matters. One reason why it matters is because you will lead someone. You, you will lead someone. I don't know when that's happening for you. I don't know when the time is going to come. But you will lead someone. In fact, you've more than likely already led someone. You've either led as a parent or you've led as a supervisor or you've led as an expert in your field or you've led as a pastor or, or, or you've led as a volunteer on a volunteer team. I don't know what you lead, but I do know that more than likely you have led. And at some point, you will lead again. And it helps to know what good gospel leadership looks like. But another reason why I think this is important is because you will follow someone. You will follow your church leadership. You will follow a boss on your job. You will, you will appoint and elect leaders. You will follow a team lead on a volunteer project. So it is equally important as a follower to know what you should expect in gospel leadership, in leadership driven and shaped by the gospel. Paul lays this groundwork. In fact, he sets the stage right out of the gate in verse 1. Verse 1, it says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Gospel leadership is about faithful stewardship. Gospel leadership is about faithful stewardship. Picture Paul saying in this verse, I know some of you are pumping us up and pumping others up and treating us and treating others like stars, and, and that's where you're going wrong. Rather, when you see us, you should regard us as servants and as stewards. In other words, it's not about celebrity. It's not about glitz. It's not about glam. It's, it's about service and stewardship. Now, be careful not to see the word stewards and equate them to what you see maybe on the airplane, like a stewardess or, or a steward who is kind of attending to people on, on a plane during a flight. One scholar said, when you talk about the word stewards here in chapter 4, more or less you should see this as an estate manager. In other words, the owner of some fortune is entrusting the handling of that fortune to this person 
that we are calling a steward. Paul is saying that the apostles, as apostles, this is what God expects of us. When you look at us, you should see us as servants and you should see us as estate managers. He expects us to conduct his business on his behalf as if he was the one doing the business himself. Do you understand that? And what is God's business? Well, the, God's business is the declaration, proclamation, and sharing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming and reflecting the kingdom of God. That is God's business. This is what is meant by Paul saying that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. And it is for this reason that we hear verse 2, or that we hear Paul say this in verse 2. Verse 2, look with me. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It is required of stu stewards that they be found faithful. Notice what Paul says is required. Faithfulness. Notice what Paul does not say is required of a steward. Not fame. Not fortune. Not celebrity. Not power. Not charisma. Faithfulness. This is how one pastor puts it, talking about this verse. He says, a steward is just a servant. He doesn't run the household. The master does. His only responsibility is to do what the master tells him. So if the master tells him to invest money in something that completely tanks, the steward doesn't take the blame. On the other hand, if the master gives the steward an order that leads to great success, the steward doesn't get the credit. Success and failure are master words. Faithfulness is the concern of stewards. You see, it's often said that God has not called us to success, but to faithfulness. And if we find success along the way, then so be it, but it is his success and not ours, amen? In fact, when you, when you shift this paradigm, what becomes success is in fact faithfulness. Faithfulness is success in the kingdom paradigm. The steward is only striving to please one, and that one is his or her master. It is for this reason that verse, verses 3 through 5 make so much sense to us. When you look at verse 3, it says, but with me it is, it, is, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul makes a very interesting statement here. It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any or by any human court. What does that mean? Well, it means this. Your judgment of me is extremely, extremely insignificant to me. And why is it insignificant to me? Because a steward's performance, a servant's performance, can only be measured by the master. It doesn't matter how others ultimately perceive him because he is ultimately approved and disapproved only by one. And how is that one measuring him? He's measuring him by whether or not he or she is faithful. You see, success in gospel leadership is not necessarily answered with how many people you're leading or how much money you're generating or how valuable of a commodity you or your ministry has become. Kingdom success is measured by one question. Are you faithful to the assignment that your master has given you? Are you faithful 
As we sit here this morning, many of you are held captive in your life by a number of different masters. And you're defining your success based on all of these different masters that you have in your life being that you're held captive to. Your employer and your coworkers and, and their impressions of you holds you captive. And so you work harder and longer to try and prove everybody on your job wrong about you. Some of you spend hours scrolling screens and sharing carefully constructed images of yourself. Why? Because you are held captive by the fear of what this fake world would think of you if they saw and knew the real you. Some of you are held captive by your family and your friends or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, so you constantly allow yourself to bend to their pressure and twist yourself into knots in order to satisfy their endless expectations of you. Even as church planners, there's metrics out there and scorecards out there, and, 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 and those scorecards talk about how many members do you have, and, and, does, your, and does, your church, um, do, does your church have enough money, and how much money is your church taking in, and, and how many people are attending on Sunday morning services, and, and how many baptisms are you having. And so, and so all of us are in some ways being pushed, pushed on both sides by these influences that are telling us what? How to think about success. And here's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying if you're not careful, you'll allow yourself to be a steward to so many that you'll live your entire life in service to all of these voices when ultimately only one voice and one approval ultimately matters. And that's here. Are you faithful to his kingdom work for your life? That's how you define success. Now, this is where it could get really off the rails because for many people, they'll hear that, what I just said, and that gives you an opportunity to shrink your circle of counsel and start looking only at yourself as the barometer of truth for how well you're living your life. And, and as long as you can say, I'm happy, I feel good, I feel like I'm faithful, then you'll say to yourself, hey, I'm good, I'm faithful, everything's all good. Man, I mean, Tupac used to have a song where he said, only God can judge me. So all you other expletives, expletives, get out of my business. Now, most of y'all wouldn't use the expletive. Some of y'all would. But you will still kind of have this kind of incomplete thought, which oftentimes doesn't turn upwards toward God, but turns inward on us. It ultimately becomes you judging you. You being true to yourself, you living for you. you. You ever hear these types of things? Man, I'm living for me. I'm just being true to me. And so it's not really God judging you, but it's you judging you. And there's another word for that. It's called pride. It's called danger. So for those who might be thinking that Paul is heading in this territory, Paul takes his, steps, uh, takes his thoughts a step further in verses 3 and 4. He says this, in fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, look, I'm not even content with allowing my identity to be shaped by my own impressions of me. I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not even content with my identity, be, uh, identity to be shaped by my own impressions of what I want out of this life and where I'll find fulfillment in this life or where I'll find happiness in this life. 
I'm not judging me. God is judging me. You know, one of the most dangerous rules that can govern our lives that, that has become so popular in this culture is always do what makes you happy. Twice we read in Proverbs, at least, that I'm aware of. One, place, one such place is Proverbs 14 and 12 where it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. In other words, doing what makes you, doing what makes you happy can get you killed. Or can have your life destroyed. Doing what makes you happy can ruin lives. Again, remember, a steward's performance, a servant's performance, can only be measured by the master of that steward. It doesn't ultimately matter what others think. It only matters what God thinks. And it doesn't even matter what you think. It only matters what God thinks. What matters is faithfulness to what the master has assigned the servant. See, Paul gets that. So as a faithful servant, Paul is pursuing that. He is searching his own life out and making an evaluation. He is saying, he is saying as I look at my life, I am not aware of anything against myself. In other words, you guys maybe have some beef against me and maybe I'm not as eloquent as some of the other leaders you hold in high regard or maybe I don't carry the same Greek philosophical skill that y'all enjoy in, other, in seeing in others and hearing in others, but that's okay. That's okay because I'm not living to receive your approval. And I've, I've, I've evaluated my life and I believe that I'm following Jesus. I believe that I'm obeying his call to love him. And I believe that I'm obeying his call to love my neighbor. And I believe that I'm operating faithfully as the apostle that God has called me to be. But it's ultimately his judgment. And I'll see in the end. That's literally what he says. Hold out judgment for me. We'll see when it's all said and done. And this is the posture that you and I should all walk in. Goodness gracious, can you imagine a world where Christians weren't slaves to the voices of the culture pressing in on them and allowing their impressions from the outside to be constantly shaped or constantly shaping who they are? And at the same time, they weren't slaves to the voices of the culture, but at the same time, they weren't slaves to their own voices. And rather, they were constantly allowing themselves to be held captive to one voice, and that voice being God alone. You see, but instead, that's not how we operate, is it? Instead, we're in constant evaluation of everybody else's voice. We're in constant evaluation of the culture's voice. We're in constant evaluation of our own voice and being true to ourselves and being happy. And, and because of that, we are missing God. Do you see that? No, instead, we should be in constant evaluation of our lives using the standard of God's word, using the standard of God of consultation to God in prayer, using the standard of counsel from other wise saints that are speaking into our lives from, from the word of God. Imagine what that world would look like. And yet Paul doesn't end there. Since he says, I cannot acquit myself, in other words, I can, I can live a life in which I seek to be totally faithful to me and still be wholly unfaithful to God. Paul is allowing his leadership to be driven by one metric. Am I being faithful to God's 
call for me. He's inviting you to look at leadership with new lenses. He's inviting you to look at leadership and the examples that you take from leadership with a gospel lens. It's not about whether others approve of your life. Nor is it even about whether or not you're happy. It's about faithfulness to what God has said. Why? Because only God can judge me. Gospel leadership is about faithful stewardship. Here's another thing that gospel leadership is about. It is about, it is about or rather it is not about worldly boasts. Look at, look at we've talked about verses 1 through 5, but verses 4 through 6 so let me back up. Verses 1 through 5, Paul is kind of taking an indirect route to unpacking what leadership, gospel leadership looks like. And he uses, he says in verse 6, I'm using myself and I'm using Apollos as examples for you guys to evaluate, help you understand what gospel leadership is. But then he makes a more direct approach from verses 6 throughout. And he says, hey, this is what is happening versus what should be happening. Verse 6, he says, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Here's the reason for the divisions that are happening in the church. Here's the reason for the factions that are happening in the church. Because they've gone beyond what is written to measure what success and what leadership looks like. They've gone beyond what is written to determine what leaders are fit and what leaders are not. There is a strong temptation in all of us to keep looking outward for our cues on life and for our cues on relationships and for our cues on leadership because oftentimes folks that are going beyond what is written may have a larger following, they may, they may be wealthier, they may be more popular, they may have a larger mass of people who like them. And so as a result, we say, well, man, I'm looking at them to find my cues for what leadership looks like. Now, as we said earlier in this series, there is nothing to learn. I mean, there is, there is nothing wrong with learning outside of Scripture. We, we all learn things outside of Scripture. However, there is something wrong with learning something outside of Scripture that replaces what's inside. Of scripture. Do you understand that? And so in other words, when we use what's outside of scripture to evaluate what success looks like in our lives and, what relation, and how relationships should be lived out and how leadership should be worked out, then we've missed the mark. See, the gospel is the lens by which we see life as it is intended to be seen. Don't use the world's standards to evaluate your success. Why should we not do that? Well, Paul says, tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. He says that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why don't I, why don't I measure my, uh, my success based on the world's standards because the world's measurement for successful leadership has a tendency to lead towards pride and divisions. Exhibit one, today's hyper-partisan landscape. 
more and more and more, we're lining up behind leaders and we're celebrating leaders and measuring leaders on all the wrong attributes as it relates to measuring what success looks like in the kingdom. We're asking whether or not they can quote-unquote, own the liberals or quote-unquote, own the conservatives. And we're asking whether or not they can get things done without ever asking will they do so with honor and mercy and grace and justice. And we're not holding them accountable to serve anybody else as long as they are willing to serve me and my interests. This is going beyond what is written according to Paul. This is not what Scripture tells us true leadership looks like. Leaders like this are plentiful, and plenty of them will build strong followings, but they should never be the standard for what the church sees and celebrates as leadership. Because the eventual end is division, and the eventual end is pride. This is exactly what has become of the Corinthian church that we're reading about, which is why Paul is now shifting to a more direct rebuke of that display of pride that has led to so much separation. Look at verse 7. He says this. For who sees anything different in you? Who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as you did not, as if you did not receive it? Paul pops the bubble on their swelling uh, pride with a series of questions. Who, what, and why? Who, what, and why? For who sees anything different? In you, in other words, who has declared you above anyone else? What makes you so special to look down with disdain on other people? Some may say, well, Paul, the world tells me my value is in what I possess and, 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 and my, my value is in my knowledge and my value is in my wisdom and my value is in my eloquence and my value is in my money and my value is in my celebrity and my value is in my beauty and my strength and my inheritance and my car and my house. To which Paul says, glad you mentioned that. The next question, what do you have that you did not receive? You say, well, my value is in these things. Well, your value isn't supposed to be in these things, but let's just say it is. How did you get these things? Who gave you these things? How can you boast about what you have? When nothing that you actually have is yours. You see, if you had not moved beyond what is written and had stayed with Scripture, then you would have remembered God's words in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, where it says, The earth is the Lord's, not Brian's. And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. If, if you would have had, if you would have stayed with scripture instead of moving beyond what was written, then you would have remembered Job's words or, or God's words in Job, Job 41 and 11, where he says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. There is nothing that we have that is not God given. And so how can we boast about anything that we have? It's Paul's point. The next question, so there's the, there's the who, there's the what, now the why. If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
you've gone beyond what is written to measure success, and you've gone, be, and, and you've gone beyond that, and instead of making, making, it, making you faithful, it has made you self-centered, it has made you divisive, it has made you prideful, and this happens in every single walk of life. Show me a bad team dynamic in the office, and I'll show you at least one person, and possibly more, with a sense of entitlement in the office. Almost as if they're saying, I'm doing y'all a favor by, by gracing y'all with my presence in this office. Show me a struggling marriage, and I'll show you at least one person, and possibly two, with a sense of entitlement. A, seed, a seething, unspoken whisper inside of one or possibly two of the members of this marriage that's saying to the spouse, remember it's inaudible so you can't hear it and it's inside of them, but it's saying to their spouse in the middle of an argument, you better just be happy that I'm still here. You're so lucky to have me. Now, of course, they're not saying that out loud, but inside they're like, you are just so lucky to have me. I don't even know if a dog would marry you if I wasn't here. You know, Tiger Woods, after he was caught up very publicly in multiple affairs, he held a press conference to apologize to his family and his friends and fans. And I'll never forget one particular thing that Tiger Woods said on that day. He said, quote, I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. Listen, I felt I was entitled. Show me an explosively divided church, and I'll show you one person, probably a few more, with a sense of entitlement in that church. One person, probably a few more, that's saying to themselves, y'all are so blessed to have someone like me in this church. Secretly, of course, they're not saying this out loud. Y'all are so blessed to have me in this church with so much knowledge that I can share with y'all. So much talent that I can share with y'all. Y'all heard me sing? Such a hard work ethic that I'm sharing with y'all. I got a little money. So my pockets are deep. Man, y'all should be really happy that I'm here. You see, the biggest remedies, the biggest solutions to division in the church is endless grace wrapped in humility. Two qualities that the outside world hears and laughs at. Even especially in Corinth, they hear grace and humility, they're like, whatever, that is the weakest thing I've ever heard in my life. And that is the means by which unity is forged. In fact, it was one of the, the two qualities that were on most prominent display when the God of the universe came down, lived a perfect life, and hung on a tree for the sins of the world. Grace wrapped in humility. Gospel leadership is also not about worldly success. We're wrapping up here. Paul attacks another pillar of their faulty understanding of leadership and maturity in verse 8. He, in verse 8, he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now, for those of you who might not notice this, Paul is actually speaking sarcastically. This is, this is Paul almost in a mocking fashion speaking to the Corinthians about their philosophy of leadership, how they think about leadership. 
The Corinthians seemingly have everything that they want. They're fat and they're happy, so to speak. They're set. They're fixed. They have what they want. They're pursuing power. They're pursuing wealth. And they are following the people who they believe have the ability to get them those things. And they're ignoring the people who they believe can't get them there. If they don't look wealthy, if they don't look prominent, if they don't have great knowledge and great wisdom and, and, and great oratorical skills and can speak well, then they're like, man, I don't even want to hear this cat. This cat can't teach me anything. The question is, is this, is this successful gospel leadership? Is this what kingdom leadership looks like? Is this what it means to follow the way of Jesus? You know, I love what Paul says at the end of verse 8. He basically is saying, man, I wish it was time for that. I wish it was time to reign as kings because I would love to enjoy that. And Jesus ain't revealed that one to me yet. It's basically what Paul is saying. Can you imagine Paul showing up in the 21st century? Can you imagine Paul showing up in Western evangelical American churches and seeing us, you know, chasing after money and seeing us chasing after power and seeing us chasing the cars and seeing us chasing the houses and chasing the seats of influence and power and doing all of it in the name of Jesus? Can you imagine him walking into these doors and hearing that? Well, you don't have to because this is what's happening in Corinth. This is what's happening in Corinth. This is the kind of setting in which he's addressing. You see, this is what happens when you take the gospel lens off your eyes and you view the world based on the way everyone else around you in the world views it. You begin to equate earthly success with kingdom success. You begin to equate earthly power with kingdom power and earthly leadership principles with kingdom leadership principles. But what does Paul say to all this? He says it in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we Desrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Paul says, you want to understand what kingdom leadership is? Look at us. Look at those that the gospel was entrusted to. Look at those that Jesus entrusted his ministry to. Look at our lives and tell us what you see. You look at our lives and you'll see a group that God, listen to Paul's words, exhibited us in last place. In other words, put us on display to be last. You ever seen that? You ever do your kid like that? Anybody in here? Kid gets in last place, you like trying to take pictures and make sure you get it on record. Going home telling everybody, hey man, <laughs> yeah boy, last place. BJ, I'm telling you man, last place. So excited, right? God has exhibited us, displayed us in last place. He has displayed us, Paul says, like men condemned to die. 
He has made us a spectacle to the watching world. While y'all are out there showing off your wisdom, everyone's looking at us and thinking we're fools. While y'all are out there pushing and clawing and, and trying to grab a hold of seats of power, we're moving in weakness, only sustained by the power of Jesus Christ. We're traveling from city to city, being beaten to within an inch of our lives, and yet continuing on in the name of Jesus. While y'all sashay into the more prominent, distinguished corners of your community, people look at us and they shake their heads in shame. While y'all are full, fully fed, we are hungry. While you got wine in your belly, we are thirsty. We are poorly clothed. We are roughly treated. We are homeless. We are working hard. We are hated. We are persecuted. We are slandered. We are treated. And we are viewed like everyone's garbage. And we are exactly where God has called us to be. This is the path of true gospel leadership, the path of sacrifice, the path of rejection, the path at times of suffering, the hard path. Now, the world, now, if you're going outside of Scripture to find your understanding of leadership, you're not going to find this. But if you go inside of scripture to find your example of leadership, you're going to find it all the way throughout. In fact, at the pinnacle of gospel leadership, you see Jesus Christ. Let me say this and then, we'll, and then, and then, I'll, then I'll tie that thought in here as we wrap this thing up. So Paul in verse 14 says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. So you hear this and you say, well, man, pastor, my life ain't anywhere close to what Paul's describing. So what do, so what do I do with that? Paul says, I, I'm, not, I'm not telling you this so you'll feel ashamed. I'm not necessarily looking for sympathy here. What, do, what am I looking for? What is Paul looking for? Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. I'm not looking for you to be ashamed. I'm not looking for your sympathy. I'm not looking for you to say, oh, man, Paul's life is just so terrible, man, and I, I just feel so bad. His life is so bad. What is Paul looking for? He is looking for a reorientation of how you see leadership. You look at me and you say, well, he must not be leading well because look at his life. When the reality is, is that I'm leading, I'm doing exactly what God has called me to do. And my life and my leadership performance is not based on how much money I got, how many clothes I got in the closet, how many shoe, pair of shoes I got. My success in leadership is measured by my faithfulness to God. Saints of God, let me tell you something. You're going to live life. And there are going to be plenty of times in your life where you're going to be asking yourself, is God here? I mean, you sure? You, you see what's going on, right? You, you sure about this? And you're going to be exactly where you're supposed to be. 
If you try to measure based on how the world measures, then you're going to always be outside of the will of God. Always. You're going to always be taking the easier roads. You're going to be always taking the roads that lead to success, worldly success. You're never going to take the roads that God is calling you to because you're measuring them differently. And so, yes, there are going to be some times that you are exactly in the will of God. And what Paul is saying is that you have to reorient how you see these things. Don't be ashamed of me. Reorient how you view these things and follow me as I follow Jesus. In fact, I'm going to send you Timothy so that he can show you the example of what this looks like. What does Paul say? Paul says, he's going to remind you of my ways in Christ. And what is he saying there? He's saying that I'm not teaching you about leadership in accordance to Paul. I'm teaching you about leadership in accordance to Jesus. I'm teaching you what it means to walk with Jesus. I'm changing your understanding of what these things look like from a worldly perspective to a Jesus perspective. Listen, saints, in order to lead for Jesus, we must be willing to lead like Jesus. You can't lead for Jesus but you don't want to lead like Jesus. You're trying to avoid all the hard stuff. You're trying to avoid any evidence of suffering. You're trying to avoid any, uh, any evidence of discomfort. You're just constantly moving towards the easy things and gravitating towards the easy things. You cannot lead for Jesus unless you lead like Jesus. And that's Paul's point here. He's saying, listen, I'm going to send Timothy so that he can show you my ways in Christ. And he can show you how the first becomes the last. How the first becomes a servant of all and last of all. So that he can show you what it means to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So that he can show you what it means to have the mind of Christ in you, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God and yet emptied himself. Made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, and took on the form of a servant. He's going to show you what it means to actually walk this thing out. That's the Christian life. And Christian leaders should be at the forefront, leading in that way. Does that make sense, saints? You know, of course, you guys know I'm always, I'm always on my dad. I'm always talking about my dad. I learned Christian leadership by watching my dad. No task was too good for him. None. Showed up at the church early, washed toilets, whatever. No task was too good for him. Drove the bus. I mean, we had like a church bus, drove the bus, whatever. No task was too good for him. There's nothing too good for him there. But you're the pastor. You're not supposed to be doing... No task, was, no task was beneath him. And what was he doing? He was teaching me what it meant to lead like Jesus. The Lord knows I'm still a long ways away from that. But I'm pursuing it and I'm inviting you to pursue it with me. I'm inviting you to pursue it with me. 
Let us lead out for Jesus by leading out like Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and we thank you.